Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This, of course, is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and this is the third installment of our new Madonna series. It'll be the last new episode of the series, but I have a little bit more on that to come. Before I get into that, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. We're running a little contest right now where we're going to select our favorite review every single month, read it on air, and then send the winner a free Pop Pantheon niche legend dad hat. So keep sending in your fantastic reviews. It really helps the show get in front of more people and spread the word however you can. If there's friends you know that are interested in pop music, interested in Madonna maybe right now, let them know about the show. Thank you so so much for spreading the word on us. Also, don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist for this and every single episode of the show on the show notes of this episode, and we will post them also on social media. We also have merch, as mentioned, the dad hat, and a Mere Superstar t-shirt available in our store at poppantheonpod.com. And please follow us on social. We are at poppantheonpod on Instagram, and I am at djlouieXIV on both Instagram and Twitter. So this is the third episode in our new Madonna series. We obviously have now done episodes on the first run of her albums from her self-titled record through True Blue. Last week, we talked about Like a Prayer. We talked about Vogue. We talked about Erotica. We talked about Bedtime Stories. This episode is going to cover her run from 1998's revelatory Ray of Light through 2005's Pay On to the Dance Floor, but also to Confessing Upon It. (laughs) Confessions on a dance floor. Kind of what I consider her last run of truly important records. I want to be clear that we are going to republish in the next couple of days, I'm not quite sure which day, an episode that we did, I think it was the fifth episode that we ever published about Madonna's run of albums since Confessions on a Dance Floor. It's me and Pop Pantheon fave Rich Doswiak, and we discuss Hard Candy, we discuss MDNA, we discuss Rebel Heart, and we discuss, unfortunately, Madame X. And that will complete in that foursome a series of episodes that covers Madonna's entire career. So I'm really proud that we've been able to close that loop with these three episodes. I'm so amazed at the reception that they've gotten. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear this one because this is my favorite run of Madonna albums. I'm completely taken with it. And there's so much to unpack here, both in a musical sense, in a thematic sense, in a lyrical sense, in terms of her vocals. I mean, there's just a lot here. And in terms of the way that she was able to reinvigorate her career, obviously at this point is pop pantheon legend. How many episodes have I mentioned Ray of Light as the gold standard for finding a new wave of success and launching yourself into higher tiers of pop stardom. So it was so fun to get to dig into all of this music. It's some of my all-time favorites. So without further ado, here is part three of our series on Madonna. Over the past two episodes of the show, we've covered Madonna eras such as her initial run of albums in the mid-1980s that wholly captured the Hot 100 and the pop cultural zeitgeist. 
We've also covered eras such as her commercial Zenith with Like a Prayer and Vogue and her early 90s releases like Erotica that were both her most imperial and most controversial. But if there's a single period, at least to my ears and eyes, that displays what makes Madonna's run a cut above your average run-of-the-mill A-list pop giants, it's the one that began with 1998's Ray of Light, an album that launched a third wave of her career that simultaneously exploded established boundaries of Madonna's artistry, featured her most intimate and revelatory content, and returned her to a firmly ensconced place at the top of the charts and the vanguard of pop's future. That she did all of this in the latter half of her second and beginning of her third decade in the spotlight, as well as as a mother in her late 30s and 40s in defiance of all the youth-oriented sexist tropes that run our pop culture, is a feat pretty much no other pop star before or after her not-named Beyonce has matched. If this run of albums had never happened, she'd still be the queen of pop. But because it did, she's something greater than that, a goddess who, at least for this time, seemed unbound by the rules of our earthly plane, and one who, during these records, fully solidified her status as one of the most important cultural figures musical or otherwise, of the modern era. Following 1994's Bedtime Stories, Madonna was operating for the first time in her career as a hit-to-hit working stiff pop star. That record had, by working within the already centrist confines of mid-90s R&B, churned out a series of successful singles that both restored her chart position, but also made her seem more ordinary than she'd ever been before. However, in 1996, Madonna's life and subsequently her artistic perspective changed forever with the birth of her first child, Lourdes Leon. Motherhood and the way it reoriented her priorities and forced her to relinquish the determined self-centeredness which had catalyzed her pop stardom to that point proved a game-changing source of inspiration. After first entering the studio with Babyface, who'd produced Bedtime Story's biggest hit, Take a Bow, Patrick Leonard, who'd helmed much of her 1989 blockbuster Like a Prayer, as well as songwriter Rick Knowles, Madonna also eventually stumbled into an unexpected left-field collaborator who would bust Ray of Light wide open. British electronica artist William Orbit had remixed a number of Madonna's songs in the past and had an acclaimed if under-the-radar career as a musician in his own right. But when Madonna's manager, Guy Osiri, suggested he send Madonna some production ideas for her new album, she was immediately taken with his combination of skittery but soft, pillowy electronica paired with acoustic flourishes. The two began work on both original songs and reimaginings of some of the previous records she'd done with Leonard and Knowles. Together, they made music that was psychedelic, cinematic, and impressionistic, weaving together elements of pop's future and past, and rendering her voice as tenderly and unadorned as it had been in some places, while playfully warping it into a computerized warble in others. These songs found her asking profound and meaningful questions about her life to that point, self-lacerating around past guises and relationships, traversing the universe both inside of and around her, celebrating the epiphany of motherhood as well as her discoveries of yoga and the practice of Jewish mysticism known as Kabbalah, and wondering what was next for her as a pop star and human being. Released in April 1998, Ray of Light was a career reimagining smash, selling 16 million copies worldwide, double that of bedtime stories, and producing three top 10 hits, The Power of Goodbye, the title track, and the haunting, pulsing electronic ballad Frozen, which hit number two on the Hot 100.
Ray of Light arrived in the midst of the teen pop explosion of the late 90s and played like canny counter-programming, presenting a mature vision for the genre that still felt decidedly cool and modern. In addition to its commercial success, it became Madonna's most critically adored record to date, landing her her first and only Grammy nomination for Album of the Year. It was also perhaps her most savvy and unexpected reinvention yet. And as only the most shrewd pop practitioners can, she seemed to know exactly how to follow it up with a project that both built on what worked and added a potent mix of new elements in order to keep her newly reinvigorated public intrigued. Rather boldly abandoning orbit for the most part, for her next album, 2000's Music, Madonna turned to another relative unknown from the electronic music scene, this time the French underground electro producer Mirwa. Together, Madonna and Mirwa began work on music that drew on some of the same hard-won soul-searching as well as the marriage of stuttering electronica and live instruments that had animated Ray of Light. The record featured some of her most unfussy singing and productions to date, such as on the spare acoustic guitar ballads I Deserve It and Gone. It also contains some of her most adventurous experimentations with electronic music, such as the Daft Punk sad robot-inspired Nobody's Perfect, sung dourly and entirely into a vocoder. But what made music truly distinct from its predecessor was the return of capital F Fun Madonna by way of her tried and true home base, the dance floor. Music, the first album of her 40s, was another smash hit for the star, selling 11 million copies worldwide and featuring two indelible top 10 hits in the US, the number four peaking stop-start folktronica of Don't Tell Me, and of course, the lead single and title track, a slamming electro-funk floor filler with a gleefully nonsensical hook that topped the charts around the world and became her last number one single in America to date. Following the back-to-back -back of Ray of Light and music, Madonna was riding high. Nearly 20 years into her career, she had achieved the unthinkable, recentering herself as a main pop girly, so to speak, in the company of a roster of artists nearly half her age who owed their whole gig to her. More pertinently, she'd done so without compromising her artistic integrity or flailing around for trendy hits. Perhaps some hubris was warranted, and that's exactly what happened with her next effort, 2003's American Life, a record which employed many of the same aesthetic touchstones as her previous two, including production once again from Mirwa, but was meant to turn the introspection outwards, creating a commentary on post-9-11 America. The result, however, didn't gel. American life was stilted, remote, cold to the touch, and condescending, presenting a Madonna, perhaps for the first time, who seemed truly out of touch. It was also her first true flop since Erotica, selling less than half of what music had worldwide, producing only one top ten, the James Bond theme song Die Another Day, and being savaged by critics. To stumble this hard at any point in a pop star's career can be catastrophic. To do so as a 44-year-old woman, when culture will spit you out at the faintest whiff of irrelevance, could have been fatal. But Madonna had one last trick up her sleeve and knew that there was exactly one way to pull it out, by venturing once again, as she always seemed to in times good and bad, to the club. For 2005's Confessions on a Dance Floor, Madonna also dipped into her playbook by drawing an underground dance producer, this time British DJ Stuart Price, to the fore to help her create music that looked back, both at her past and the music that came before her, as well as a head towards Pop's future. Unlike her previous three albums, though, this music did not attempt to pull centrist pop along with her strange whims. Instead, Confessions aimed at down-the-middle, easily consumable earworms, state-of-the-art hooks, and irresistible four-on-the-floor disco house beats that swirled and beckoned towards ecstasy and euphoria without sacrificing the sophistication or world-worn wisdom of her other latter-period material. This recalibration was very effective. Confessions spun off a series of hits worldwide, including Sorry and Get Together, but is probably best remembered for its lead single, The 
ABBA sampling anthem, Hung Up, which topped the charts in almost every single country globally and hit number seven in the US. Hung Up stands to this day as one of Madonna's greatest ever singles in a career filled with them, and also, perhaps, her last moment of true pop transcendence. Madonna has released four more studio albums since Confessions, which are covered in our previous episode on her from 2021, and which will be republished on this feed shortly after this one. She is widely referred to as the Queen of Pop for her epic run of mainstream success and the myriad ways in which she defined the genre. With sales of over 300 million records worldwide, Madonna is the best-selling female recording artist of all time. She is the most successful solo artist in Billboard Hot 100 history with a whopping 36 top 10 singles, and 12 number ones. She's won seven Grammy Awards, two Golden Globe Awards, five Billboard Music Awards, and 20 MTV VMAs. With revenue of over $1.5 billion from her concert tickets, she remains the highest grossing female touring artist worldwide. Forbes has named Madonna the annual top-earning female musician a record 11 times across the last four decades. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2008, her first year of eligibility. Madonna Madonna was ranked as the greatest woman in music by VH1, as the greatest music video artist ever by MTV and Billboard, and is widely considered to be one of the most impactful pop cultural figures to have ever walked the face of this planet. Here with me to discuss Madonna's revelatory run of albums from Ray of Light through Confessions on a Dance Floor is author and journalist Annie Zaleski. Uh I am here once again with the brilliant author and journalist Annie Zaleski, who actually just published a recent book on a very important Madonna acolyte, Lady Gaga, called Lady Gaga Applause, an Illustrated Biography. Annie, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I like that you said acolyte. I, depending on who you ask, the term might be different. I think Gaga and Madonna run hot and cold. Yes, they certainly <laughs> do. But I think at the end of the day, there is love there, at least from Gaga to her, maybe. I don't know. Absolutely. I am thrilled to have you here for a topic that is near and dear to my heart. We've been covering Madonna for the last three weeks on the show, but this is my personal favorite period of Madonna's career. And I think the one in which her artistry reached its apex and one in which I was able to witness in real time, because I was born in 1987. So I wasn't cognizant for her peak 80s era. I was only marginally cognizant for like her 90s moment. The first Madonna video that I remember is Human Nature. <laughs> so a lot of what I've learned about Madonna's impact music, her iconic career has kind of come in retrospect. But this was a period that I actually remember witnessing. So kind of mystical Madonna, Earth Mother Madonna, this introspective period of her life where she was kind of reframing or looking back on a lot of her past personas and past life through this newly grounded, spiritual, yogic lens was the Madonna that was Madonna to me, the Earth Mother, as I like to say. And I think that numerous points in this period in her career represent the best of her artistry and work and the deepest of her artistry and work. How do you feel about this period of her 
I would agree with that. I'm a little bit older than you are. So like I have memories of her from the 80s, but I really jumped on in the 90s. And when she was in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was a really pivotal time in my life. And it was a pivotal time in Madonna's life too. And it was so ear opening. And even in hindsight, you know, as I was kind of listening back, I'm like, oh my God, this is so enriching and it's held up so well. And there's still so much to kind of dig into with her and the sound. And I'm hearing things I didn't hear then. And so basically I agree with you 100%. Yeah, it's incredible to watch her at this phase of her career, when I'm assuming many people thought she was probably over, to come back and find a new way to exist as a successful mainstream pop star in her late 30s and through her 40s. It's something that very few pop stars have managed to do in a compelling way, and it serves, I think, in contrast to a lot of the struggles that she's had in the records that come after the period that we're going to talk about, which is that without sacrificing her integrity, she was able to find a way to make exciting pop music that operated in some sort of centrist way without pandering or attempting to recapture older ideas of who she was. And also to sort of traverse the universe. Like the entire time that I was listening, especially to Ray of Light and music in particular, I think about the way that she was interfacing with herself and thus with like the world at large as almost like she was on some sort of like psychedelic (laughs) trip through her past, her present, and through music. And it's almost hard to reconcile this artist with the person that made, like, cherish some of those silly earlier songs of hers. I think part of what makes Madonna so fucking amazing is that, like, the essence somehow retains, but if you put these two things next to each other, you almost feel like you're dealing with two entirely different entities on some level. Right. And it's like, if you look at someone like Prince, who I think had a very similar trajectory with her, he always kind of had that essential princeness. You know, even when he was doing different style of music, you always knew it was Prince. Madonna completely reinvented herself like, you know, as a chameleon so many times. And that's kind of been the one consistent kind of hallmark of her career, I would think. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm very excited to unpack just how she was able to have this third wave of success with you because just on a sheerly commercial level, not many have done this. No, absolutely not. It's a marvel. This period of her career, I hold up in like the ultimate highest esteem of any of it. So I'm super excited to get into it. I think the first question that I would like to ask you is you mentioned you were more of a full-fledged human being in the (laughs) mid-90s than I was. I was still going to elementary school and had very little awareness of what pop music was aside from like what I heard on the radio. So what was the perception of Madonna following bedtime stories? Like where was she in her career? Because the way that I think about it, and I wonder if you can just tell me if this sounds right to you, was that bedtime stories and really her 90s output in general, erotica and bedtime stories, were successes on some level, maybe less so erotica, but bedtime stories. But she was kind of an earthbound pop star for the first time in her life. Like she didn't feel like she was the dominating force that she had been through like a prayer, let's say, or through Vogue. And she was in her mid-30s, 
Bedtime Stories was a moderate success, I would say. I'm curious, like, how you would characterize, like, where she was leaving that mid-90s era in culture broadly. It's funny because she was sort of having her pivot that many pop stars do to movies and ballads. Mm. She was kind of moving into her sophisticated phase. Like, we all kind of thought that she was, you know, all right, she's kind of leaving pop music behind, you know, the fun dance floor stuff, and she's going to do the huge ballads that win you awards. I mean, she Mm. did a Vita. And yeah. like, you must love me. And I will tell you, I bought the CD single to that song because I loved it so much. And it won an Academy Award. And so she she did what she set out to do. You must love me. You must love me. It was like one of those things where it's like you're graduating. You know, once you kind of dominate the pop charts and you dominate youth culture, you kind of have to figure out what's next and you become more sophisticated and you try on those different personas to appeal to you know, an older audience because that's what you're quote unquote supposed to do. Mm. And that's what she had done. And so, you know, it's one of those things where I don't think people necessarily expected her to come out with Ray of Light and move back into the dance floor after kind of having this detour. And so, I mean, you look at her in Evita and I mean, she is Eva Perone. She is this beautiful, glamorous woman. And, you know, she was kind of the opposite of being fun disco Madonna or, mm. you know, dominatrix Madonna that she was. Right. Like she's totally like, oh, it's time to grow up. There we go. Got to do it and leave that right. behind a little bit. And as someone who was known as such a provocateur mm-hmm. as like an essential element of her artistry to that point, it was interesting watching her biggest hit of the 90s be this adult contemporary <sighs> ballad take a bow with Babyface, you know, it was a moment where I have to imagine that people thought she was in a waning moment of commercial success. Because who wouldn't think that? I mean, are there other pop figures that you can think of that have effectively unlocked success in their late 30s and early 40s and that maybe were providing any sort of instructive material for her as she tried to sort of reinvent once again, moving into this record. The one name that I kept coming back to was Cher. And obviously Cher had Believe as well, kind of around the time Madonna was coming back and that was being touted. But, you know, Cher in the late 80s had her come back and she followed a similar path. She was like, okay, you know, music's not working. I'm going to go into acting. And she had great success in acting. And then she had her big musical comeback. So there's kind of an interesting parallel there. But otherwise, you know, not really. You know, most of the Mm -hmm. people that are in their 40s, you know, if they're rock stars, that's kind of a given. And especially if you're a man, you can be in your 70s and 80s. That's totally fine. For women, it was so much more difficult. And I looked up, it was country, like Reba McIntyre, who obviously had some crossover success, kind of did something similar. And then I guess probably Dolly Parton. But Dolly was ebbing and flowing as well. She definitely was not having consistent success either as older. And so Madonna, as for much of her career, didn't have very many role models. Yeah. I think Cher is really also instructive because I feel like unlike a Reba McIntyre who like always felt like a comfortable pivot into like an adult audience, Cher is another artist that was like some form of a provocateur, someone that utilized her sexuality as one of her number one facets of her artistry. The other person that I think might be worth bringing up potentially is Tina Turner, who Ah, had her biggest solo success in her 40s and did so by being rather sex forward. I mean, the album is literally called Private Dancer. It's dealing with a lot of overtly sexual themes. And your private dancer, a dancer for money, do what you want me to do. 
she's one of the rare, but like really that's it. And I think you're right on being able to succeed and not just succeed, because this is the other thing that I think makes this period of Madonna's career unique, not just succeed, but to succeed in a way that deepens and broadens the scope of your artistry and makes you interesting anew. Not just because you're like slamming home a great covers album or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's kind oh, of yeah. the important thing that should be underpinning some of this too. It's like not just success, but like a form of success that makes you interesting in ways that people didn't even think of you as before. It's so hard for pop stars to do that. Pop stardom is just a young person's game. You mentioned there's a dichotomy that goes on in gender and then, of course, like across rockist and poptimism or whatever values that go on here. But like, I think that's a really unique form of success that I really think you're right. Cher and then I think Tina and then her and then maybe Beyonce are like some of yeah. the only examples of women that have effectively pulled that trick off. Those were the ones that came into my mind. I would agree. And they're not leaning on their legacy. They're very right. uninterested in leaning on their legacy. They're like, if I'm going to continue making music, it needs to be something new and different. I need to be trying to find new sounds. I need to be trying to expand. As an artist, I am satisfied only if I'm sort of making things I haven't done before. And that is a big difference because, you know, look how many people say, oh, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go out and do the same old thing and do the oldies circuit and, you know, just kind of rest on my laurels. And all of those artists you mentioned definitely are not doing that. I want to also just put a pin in the fact that Madonna's entering in the late 90s a period of pop music that is extraordinarily youth-oriented. Yes. And I think that that needs to be set here as table settings. That also makes her success in this period extraordinary to me. This is the heart of the teen pop boom. We're talking Britney, Backstreet, Christina, Max Martin, Spice Girls. I mean, that is the beating heart of mainstream popular music in the late 90s. to the fact that this would be difficult in any era or hard trick to pull off for anyone. But she's also entering an era of pop music that is like really, really explicitly teen oriented. And she has to find a way to navigate that. She's not going to be making like a Max Martin Britney song in order to have a comeback. Like that's never going to work for this woman who's like just had her first kid and who has been in the public consciousness at this point for 15 years. It's just not going to work for her. So that I just think is an important ground layer for us to be laying out there. Like she's entering actually like a particularly youth-oriented moment in, in pop, which is always incredibly youth-oriented. Yeah, if you look at some of the artists, they were literal teenagers. Madonna could have been their mother. You know, you look at like Literally. Mandy Moore, you look at, you know, Jessica Simpson, you look at Aaron Carter, you know, rest in peace. The pop stars were getting younger, even as their music was also geared toward teenagers. And it's like, yeah. if you're an adult, you can't compete with that. And I think what was smart about Madonna at this age is that she was like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to kind of pave my own way. And that was also one of the savviest things I think she did too. So Madonna returns to her studio album in 1998, Ray of Light. You sort of were touching on this right now, but like, what do you think her ambitions were for this project on both a sonic and thematic level? What do you think she was attempting to do with this music? 
You know, I think she was trying to figure out maybe what a dance music or a pop music album looked like for her at that particular point in time with all of the new collaborators that had been around. You know, she was trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what her version of dance music would be because we mentioned that, you know, teen pop was big. So were things like trip hop. I mean, you know, 1997 was ground zero for the quote unquote, you know, dance music comes to America. And I'm using air quotes here Mm. with like, you know, Chemical Brothers (laughs) and Sneaker Pimps. You look at the Saint soundtrack, which was all dance music. I'm sure she was looking at like, you know, okay, I did this in the 80s. Like I was the dance floor queen. Like I can absolutely compete with these people. But also like, how do I push myself forward? I don't want to kind of repeat the dance floor tropes, like maybe the disco and things like that. What does dance music and rhythms look like for me now? Interesting. I think it's also clear that she was trying to assume a singer-songwriter introspective guise. And I think that's a really important element to this because one of the fusions of Ray of Light is the dance floor with these raucous tropes. There's a lot of guitars on it. There's allusions to grunge. And I think that in terms of the themes that she was trying to deal with, A, She had just had her first kid, which I feel like is a really important element of this. She was very interested, it feels like to me, in making a pop record about motherhood and how motherhood had reoriented how she thinks about her life. And I think she'd also clearly had some sort of massive spiritual awakening because the other sort of undercurrent (laughs) of both sonic and lyrical themes on this record have to do with Kabbalah and with yoga and with like her journeys to the East. <laughs> it yes. to be a big, for better and worse, and in some things we might look back on now as sort of cringy about Ray of Light on some level, like her singing in Sanskrit. <laughs> Shanti, There was definitely, I feel, a real kind of like revelation in her songwriting because Madonna had made introspective music before, right? Like Like a Prayer being a really obvious example of this. But she had never self-deprecated or like dug into looking back at her past in the way that she does on this record. I mean, on the first song alone on Drown World, Substitute for Love, she literally says, I traveled around the world looking for a home. I found myself in crowded rooms feeling so alone now i find i've changed my mind this is my religion a traded thing for love without a second thought it all became a silly game some things cannot be bought i got exactly what i asked for wanted it so badly running rushing back for more suffered fools so And this is something that she returns to so much on a lot of these albums is looking back at her sort of like attention-hungry persona from the past and being like, wait, like that was kind of fucked up and like I don't think about 
life that way anymore. And like having a kid changed my life and allowed me to be introspective about some of the things that I was known for in the past. Well, there's this idea of like home too. You know, I think of like Ray of Light, you know, you think of that song and then you think of like light zapping around and it's all very yes. frantic. But the idea then of home, this like calmness, which is kind of a yin and the yang almost. And that's what it feels like too, that she's trying to figure out what a calmer life looks like without fame, because you're right, she's a mom now. So how does she balance that with this Madonna persona? There's a lot of tension in between that, but she conveys that in a really, you know, interesting way. It's not necessarily super hit you over the head of that. She doesn't have the answers, basically. She's trying to figure out what the answers might be. And it's kind of a work in progress. Right. Like that sense of wonderment. I mean, I love what you say about the home thing. I mean, when she says on Ray of Light, I feel like I just got home. That is like such a powerful moment in her discography because I really feel like it's what you're saying, which is that like somehow she's landed in some form of home related to having her kid. But I also feel like this new guy this new artistic guys, this new depth in her exploration of self and the wonderment at like not having answers, which is like a lot of what these records are about, is a homecoming. Like this song and also the Sonic guy she's in, it all feels like she's had some sort of revelation. And when I hear the lyric, I feel like I just got home, I almost feel like it's this ecstatic artistic celebration of this revelation that she's had. And I completely agree with you that in her vocalizing on Ray of Light, the song, and throughout this record, she's never sounded better and she's never sounded more human. She's never sounded less pushy in her vocals, kind of more at ease than she does in this record. And I do agree with you that it's almost like the skittering electronics of the production provides the chaos of the world or the chaos of her life outside. And she's providing the grounded sort of spiritual center of these songs in a certain way. And she's learning how to let go. She's learning not to have to have that control and that it's okay to be grounded. And I mean, when you're someone who's in the public eye 24-7, as she had been for almost two decades at this point, the idea of being grounded and being, you know, not capital M Madonna all the time probably is terrifying. And the fact that she's letting that go and trying to figure out a new path as she's moving into motherhood, into her 40s, I think is also really interesting. The thing about Ray of Light that's so amazing is that the song, I mean, in particular, like it functions both as an expression of the record sort of like deeper, more esoteric thematic concerns, and also as just like a slamming, exciting, <laughs> ecstatic yes. dance floor number that sounds like nothing she's ever made before. No. And yet, as you said, represents a return to the sort of values of dance floor as revelation that she's come back to since everybody get up, dance and sing and everybody do your thing. So it's the past and the present and the future like fusing together into this incredible celestial, almost like trippy universe Reversing oh, yeah. sound. Courtesy of William Orbit, who I feel like we should mention here. So she had begun this record actually 
with Babyface, who had worked yeah. on Take a Bow and had abandoned him. She then picked up Patrick Leonard, who had been a huge contributor to both True Blue and Like a Prayer. And they wrote a bunch of songs together. But in terms of the sonic scope of this, the real thing that really brings this whole thing together is the producer, William Orbit. Can you give us a sense of who this man is and like why he's the person that she goes to for this? So he had remixed Justify My Love and Erotica. And so they had, right. you know, some sort of working relationship. She said that she was a fan of William's earlier records. And so mm -hmm. he put out a couple of solo records in like the late 80s, which I would probably say are pretty obscure. You know, I don't think he was necessarily any sort of household name. So I was very interested that she said that she kind of picked up on that. And so that just shows, you know, her ear was always to the ground. But he was just known for being a remixer and has been. So he's kind of like known for this bubbly pop music. It feels like his music is very buoyant. His beats are very soft, almost like soft glow. They're not necessarily like huge hard-edged techno. They're like house right. at some point. He has a very distinctive sound. When you hear it, you're like, okay, I, I totally get that. It's kind of dreamy. It's very human as well. He's very good at that. And he used a lot of samples too. And so it makes sense why potentially he and Madonna might connect at this time because he's very different than who she had worked with in the past. I mean, I think one of the last producers she worked with is Shep Pettibone, who of course has such a very distinctive style, which is very different from William Orbitz. There's like a cinematic quality to it. And I think that there's something about the skittering electronics. But oh, yeah. as you mentioned, there's a real soft pillow to the whole thing that perfectly encapsulates, I think, like what her ambitions were in terms of this revelatory lyrical content that she's trying to put out there and also gesturing back towards the dance floor. What do you feel like are some of the other themes that are being explored here? We've talked about home. We've talked about motherhood. We've talked about her looking back on her career. The biggest hit and the song that single-handedly launches this record and reinvents Madonna's career is the lead single, Frozen, which is one of her, I think, most powerful emotional emotional ballads. You only see what your eyes want to see. How can life be what you want it to be? You're frozen when your heart's not open. It's like breakup, but it's realizing there's an ending to things, but it's in a way that you're at peace with it. You're not necessarily mm. finding turbulence or you're not conflicted about it. And I feel like this speaks to her faith and her spirituality at this point, you know, that it's more like, okay, this is what it is. Love is a bird. She needs to fly. If you love someone, something set it free. Love is a bird. I feel like there's just kind of a realizing things are ending and being okay with it and being open to what's next. And so maybe that's one of the themes is moving forward and being okay with that, being okay with relationships mm. ending, being okay with life periods ending and being at peace with that. And that which is so different. When you're talking about breakups in pop music, that's not always the case. There's so much that's underpinning that you're just like, oh, this is awful. You know, you're you're wallowing. You have no idea what to do. You're teeth gnashing. And this is a lot more at peace. And I think that's what also just really permeates this record is that there's sort of this interesting kind of vibey tranquility in a sense, even though there are these really cool, urgent beats. It's like a kaleidoscope when you're like looking through it and there's so many different things going on and it's just so vibrant. You made me think so many things about Frozen. First of all, I love what you say about the power of moving on. I mean, this is something that she returns to also in the single The Power of Goodbye. There's no place left to try. There's no place left 
that represents something that she thematically deals with with love, but also could stand in as a bigger story about Madonna's career and the success of her career is her willingness to drop guises and to drop past successes and to move into the next form. That's something that has generated so much of her success is this willingness to say, yeah, that was good for me, but like I'm ready to be something else now. And like that ability to take those risks and that boldness is such a huge reason why she continued to be successful, paired with the fact that her instincts about what was next were good. <laughs> Unlike some right. other pop stars, you know, she always knew what was coming next. And I think a lot about the idea of Frozen linking back to themes that she's dealt with before on Express Yourself, the idea that in a patriarchal society, men don't know how to express emotion, and that can be the death knell to so many heterosexual dynamics in relationships. She talks about that a lot on Express Yourself. That's the whole theme of the song. You've got to make him express how he feels, and then you'll know his love is real. Here, she's saying you're frozen when your heart's not open, and the idea here is essentially that emotional distance kills love and intimacy, especially I think when dealing with male partners in a patriarchal system, which is something that Madonna is constantly interested in unpacking. <laughs> yes. She says, if I could melt your heart, we'd never be apart. If you could open up, if you could unlock this emotional part of your being, we could be together, but you can't. That's what she's resigned to here. I also sometimes think about this song as having a dual meaning between is she talking to a lover or is she talking to herself? Like when she says something like you're so consumed with how much you get, you waste your time with hate and regret. I mean, there's a lot of motifs on this record where I feel like she's addressing herself in the past. Like I love the opening lyric of Nothing Really Matters, which I think kind of stands in as a thesis statement for what this record is where she says, when I was very young, nothing really mattered to me but making myself happy. I was the only one. Now that I'm grown, everything's changed. I'll never be the same because of you, i.e. Lourdes. When I was very young, nothing really mattered to me but making myself happy. I was the only one. Now that I am grown, everything's changed, I'll never be the same, because of you. So basically how motherhood has completely altered the way that she like relates to her past self. And I think that that's a really important theme that she returns to a lot and that somehow motherhood opened her eyes to a selfish way of being in the past or a frozen way of being in the past or a stilted way of being in the past that like kind of threads through a lot of these records. And in a sense, you can view this album and the way that motherhood has awakened her as a person who grew up with no mother who never experienced the act of motherhood as a child, having to figure out what that means purely from the perspective of being a mother herself. And nothing really matters. Like those lyrics are just, when you read them, they're just so cutting. Like she pulls oh my God. no punches. She's very unsparing, kind of looking at her past self. But she says, though, nothing takes the past away like the future, which is also such a thesis statement for her record and her career.
is that a good thing? And I mean, I think that's the big question is that she's saying, here's what this is. And I think it's up to us kind of to decide. You're so right. And you've nailed so many like amazing, I'm like spine tingle because there's <laughs> like, like another great lyric on this song, something is ending and something begins once again, yes. speaks to the theme that you were talking about. But the sort of self-laceration here is a new feature. I don't think I've ever seen Madonna prior to this point be willing to sort of like take the knife on herself. I mean, she's always been really cutting about men and she's always been really incisive about broader cultural things. But there's a sort of self-reflection and self-laceration here that isn't present in the past. She says, again, on Drowned World, I got exactly what I asked for, running, rushing back for more. And now I find I've changed my mind. There's this theme of running and like how her past has always been about kind of like outrunning something. And that's been such like an yeah. engine in the forward motion of her career. And I love what you said here about the gray area of like, that's generated so many exciting, amazing pieces of art throughout this work, but also like perhaps has been something that hasn't been maybe great for her as a person or this record is maybe revealing to us, like has a more multifaceted dynamic thing for her as a human being. And that links back to your idea about this record being about home, because there's something about taking a moment to stand still, to self-reflect, to find your center in the midst of a meteoric jet ride through pop culture that you could sort of describe her career as that is what this album ultimately like feels like to me. Something I've been sort of trying to parse apart in my mind about Madonna is notions of true vulnerability. Because Madonna, I think, yeah. even when she's revelatory, she can feel invulnerable. And I wonder how you feel about this record as an expression of actual vulnerability. You know, I think about this a lot, actually, in relationship to her fetishization or sort of reinvigoration of images of Marilyn Monroe, who was like probably the only person counter to her that's like as famous or iconic in pop culture. Yeah. Like they kind of are twin flames in this weird way, but was all vulnerability, was all tenderness, was all like you felt like you could blow her over like a leaf. And Madonna is so the opposite of that, like kind of like an impenetrable penetrable fortress. Even when she's having revelations, you feel like she's completely in control of everything that she's doing and saying at all times. How do you feel like vulnerability comes across this record? Like, is that something that you feel like she reaches a new depth with? Do you ever feel like there's a tenderness that is on a new expansive layer? Or how do you relate to that in these songs? That is such a good question. And it's such a big question because you're right. I mean, when you mentioned Express Yourself earlier, and that song is like all bulletproof vulnerability. She was, you know, so tough. I think this is a really vulnerable record, but it's it's vulnerable on Madonna's terms. Like, you know, even those yes. lyrics we were That's talking always. about, you know, we, we can kind of extrapolate and, you know, well, it's probably, you know, it's about motherhood. It's about she's thinking, but it's universal enough. And it's also not necessarily explicitly spelled out enough. There's something kind of held back. You know, there's something that we don't necessarily hear about. There's still that mystery there. And so mm. I think she's really good at making herself vulnerable and also having the illusion of vulnerability too. Although I do think that in terms of when you kind of look at her catalog, this probably is her most vulnerable, I think. And I think it comes down to her singing. I know we mentioned that earlier. So much earlier in her career, she was criticized for her singing. And you knew that bothered her. Even though she might not have said that, it bothered her because she can sing. I think Evita really kind of gave her the confidence to be able to belt it out. And if someone didn't like it too bad, like there really is a lot of richness to her voice and it's very warm and it's very welcoming. And I think that does translate to vulnerability. When you look at this era, I think that's one of my favorite things as I was re-listening to that is just how appealing her voice is. You remember, oh, she can actually sing. You know, everyone who criticized her was completely wrong, as we all knew. But, mm -hmm. you know, she really said, no, look, when I want to, I can do this. I think that extends 
to the image of this record too, which like was a huge reinvention. But when you go back and look at the way she was presenting herself physically on this, I mean, I guess if you look at like a video like Frozen where she's like full on goth and like having henna tattoos, <laughs> yes. I mean, that that's one thing. But in terms of just like the album cover, for instance, she looks the most naturalistic that she ever really did, I think. And the less stylized, I guess, in a sense. Although obviously every jean jacket and jean combo that was used <laughs> yes. to promote this record, I'm sure was thought out to the umpteenth degree as it's everything that Madonna ever does. But there was something about the presentation here that felt incredibly warm and natural and earth mothery too. I think that that sort of vulnerability, that very well plotted and thought out and only on Madonna's own terms, as you mentioned, vulnerability extends into sort of the visual representations of her on this record. Although with the caveat of the music videos, specifically the Frozen music video, which I think is probably the most iconic clip from this record and is so good. If you listen or have not seen yeah. that, it's her in like a, I don't know, like a desert or something like that. Yep. And she's like goth and there's multiple of her and birds are <laughs> flying out of her and she's got henna all over her. And it's one of her most visually stunning music videos, in my opinion. I also was curious about the allusions to grunge and just sort of like the rockism of this album is another facet that I think is interesting because obviously we know artists turn to those tropes in order to establish credibility. And I think that that's something that is another theme in Madonna's work that sort of reaches its apex here is that through the 80s, she was a juggernaut, but seen as frivolous or perhaps a puppet in unfair ways by like a lot of the establishment. She didn't get a lot of the credibility that she was looking for. And she had kind of been attempting to rectify that with almost every subsequent release, starting with like a prayer, I feel like being like the most obvious moment where she was like, no guys, like I'm a serious artist. And like, this is the music that I make as a serious pop artist. But this is the album where she really goes for critical cred. Her writing changes a lot, for instance, like she uses a lot of like impressionistic lyrical flourishes, the way that she talks about famous faces, far off places, trinkets I can buy. On Swim, she talks about like waves crashing and these metaphors for emotional shifts. In, in Ray of Light, the song, Zephyr in the Sky at Night. I mean, what the <laughs> fuck know. is she even talking about? Exactly. You know, for someone that was a very direct lyricist through a lot of her career, I feel like this represents a real shift in that way. So can you talk about some of, like, the rock flourishes and aesthetics that she's bringing into the mix here on songs like Drowned World, for instance? The face of you, my substitute for love, my substitute for it's funny because I feel like this was what so many pop stars were doing at this point. And right. I don't know if this is like a hangover from the fact that like grunge was so popular yeah. or if this is like Madonna calling back to some of the stuff because she's always had these really weird, interesting rock flourishes, but they've been fleeting. Like I think of like, mm -hmm. like a prayer. It's weird because the idea of using, and I'm using quotes again, rock influences, the establishment sees that as credibility because pop music yeah. has never gotten respect. So it's almost like she was putting that in to remind people that if I really wanted to, I could do something like this, but I'm going to incorporate them in different ways. I mean, William Orbit has a rock background. I mean, that's what's so interesting is that Orbit has this electronic thing too, but he's also strong at working with rock musicians. So he knows how to weave that stuff in. And I mean, it, it could just be also that Madonna was also zigging when other people were zagging because, you know, yeah. we talked about it was teen pop. It was super produced. It was super Max Martiny. And she was like, I think I'm gonna put some rock stuff in because rock music was 
kind of boring in 1998. Honestly, let's be real here. It was new metal. Madonna is absolutely not going to do a new metal song. And so she's like, what can I take from the past that might be interesting? And so that is also her deciding, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to do something what people don't expect from me. I think what Orbit does here, and Madonna by extension, in terms of melding electronica and synthetic instrumentation with these warmer flourishes of those kind of grungy guitars is part of what lends this record its dynamism because it's that counterbalance between the whooshing, skittering electronica, you know, that's kind of emerging, as you said, like from a lot of European scenes, but like Moby is doing stuff like this and Bjork is doing stuff like this. And like there is a world in which this is emerging from, but the interesting contrast of that with the warmer live instrumentations and Madonna's warmer perspective and vocals, I think Candy Perfume Girl is a great example of this. Part of what makes this record so unique and hold up so well and not just sound like a trendy electronica record, like there's this fusion that goes on here that I think she ends up trying to hit again to varying degrees of success through the subsequent two Mm -hmm. records that is the signature palette of this entire thing. All I can say, Annie, is this record is a wow to me of realized ambition. I can't believe the scope of what she set out to do here, both in terms of the expansion of her personal artistry and all of the rest of what we've been talking about here and that she was so incredibly successful at doing so is kind of mind-blowing to me. Honestly, every single time I listen to it, I never get bored listening to this record. And I realized that it's turning 25 at the end of February. Oh my God. It doesn't sound like a record that was made 25 years ago. And I mean, one thing we didn't touch on was, you know, so much of the production in the 80s, even though Madonna was forward-thinking kind of dates the music and you can hear it, you're like, oh, that's very 1987 or, oh, yeah, oh for that's sure. 1983. This record feels very, very timeless. Perhaps her most timeless of any of her albums. Yeah, which I was very surprised by. Certain of her records have aged better than others, but this one has aged so well. And it's a record of so many layers that it doesn't get boring. Like I find that even though I've been listening to it for 25 years, I'm constantly uncovering new things and it hits me at different periods of my life. And it's the record that unfortunately casts a shadow over, again, I hate to return to this, but like over some of her antics over the last 15 years, because it's like, you know what this woman is capable of. And this is it. To me, this is the crown jewel of Madonna's artistry. And it's like, you can't look away from the fact that she created and realized such an ambitious, such a revealing, fascinating, dynamic, a record that works as pop and as something experimental. All of these things, I feel like she achieved the height of her artistry here. And you can never look away from that. Like everything now is like in the shadow of that on some level. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is what is so frustrating is that, you know, Madonna is capable of this. You know, Madonna is capable, you know, if she's in the right mood, has the right collaborators, has the right studio environment, and that she can make brilliance like this. And so she's always set the bar so high for herself, which is great for us, but difficult for her because she always has these benchmarks that are just, she's always trying to even reach, if not top. And it's just, they're just so good. It's difficult. How would you characterize the sort of critical and commercial success? Like, does this reinvigorate her career in like notable ways? Like, how is this record received? My recollection is that this really catapulted 
with her again. Obviously, I think it was a different time frame because, you know, we're in the 80s. The 80s was the era of the superstar because of the monoculture and that Madonna was Madonna and everything. And so obviously, I think that it wasn't necessarily that level, but I think that would have been difficult to reach. But I think it just really, it gave her back credibility. Yeah. She seemed way more in the public eye. You know, MTV played these videos a lot. She was obviously has always been one of their core artists. It definitely got mm-hmm. a lot of support. I mean, it sold extremely well. Everything charted well. It was one of those reminders that you never count her out. Even though, and it's funny because like Frozen and Ray of Light were such huge hits and The Power of Goodbye as well. You know, those three songs were such huge hits that almost single-handedly catapulted the rest of the record. Three top 10 hits. Yeah. I mean, I remember being 10 years old and thinking she was cool. And like, it's just funny thinking about artists that are the equivalent of that today and how quickly pop culture wants to like chuck, especially women out the window. And the fact that I grew up and was so fixated on her having not been there for those 80s peaks just speaks to, I think, like what this record did and that she did so by kind of acting as counter-programming, as we mentioned to this teen pop movement, so effectively, like it boggles the mind. There's not enough praise that I can heap onto this. Like so many moments in Madonna's career, like can encapsulate like why she's Madonna, you know, (laughs) like why she is just the most successful pop star that has ever walked the face of the earth. But I think if you had to land on one, it's this, it's like this 39 year old woman and came back with a record that didn't sound like what most of mainstream pop was doing at this exact moment and was dealing with these incredibly mature themes that like don't necessarily provide fodder for most pop music, you know what I mean? Motherhood and religion and Eastern philosophy and introspection, looking back, being someone older that's able to look back on the past and make that into something fun to listen to. It's spine tingling. It really just, I just love her so much for this moment. There was something almost soothing about about some of yes. this music. Like, whereas like she was so defined by her like ultra attention grabbing in previous eras for better and worse. Like there was something that was very much like, I'm going to do this and like you're all going to come to me and I'm just going to be <laughs> yes. sort of doing my thing over here. And like that is so powerful. Talk about that power. I mean, there's no greater power than that. Not to quote the power of goodbye. <laughs> Hey everyone, are you liking this episode? Are you enjoying what you're hearing here? Well, I think you might need to join Pop Pantheon All Access. That is our new Patreon channel where for just five bucks a month at the icon tier, you'll get access to at least one bonus episode a month where we're talking about new music. This week, we did a whole new episode talking about new stuff from Lana Del Rey, from Megan Trainor, Paramore, Kim Petras, and so many more of your favorite artists. We recently published an in-depth review of SZA's SOS featuring Pop Pantheon fave Owen Myers, and other Pop Pantheon guests of choice have shown up on album deep dives like Rolling Stone's Britney Spanos on Taylor Swift's Reputation and Dunzo's Troy Bikini on Britney Spears' Blackout, and we have so many more of those episodes to come. And we're also providing access to our Discord channel, guest list for my party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, and so many other amazing perks. So head over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode or in our bios on social media and become an Icon Tier subscriber today. So Ray of Light is a massive success. It sells 16 million copies worldwide and I think most importantly is considered to be her most acclaimed 
and fully realized artistic project, probably to date, to that point and after that point. I think it's important that to this day, it's widely considered to be one of the finest examples of a mainstream pop album or the scope of what a mainstream pop album can be. We still hold it up in this very particular way. It's nominated for six Grammys, wins four of them, and it's her only album, which is truly shocking, to be nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys. This record really resituates Madonna, not just as a commercial force, which it certainly did, but I think even more so than like a prayer and her early 90s art tour statements really situates her as an artist of heft and credibility in a way that she really hadn't been before. And that is part of what I think gives the next swing of her career some form of legs that perhaps she wouldn't have had otherwise, even if she had generated some hits. And clearly she understands what worked here. So she gets back into the studio pretty quickly and two years later she releases another record, 2000's Music. Orbit is still in tow for a couple of songs, but the main collaborator is now this guy, Mirwa. How do you think she's attempting to build off of this excessive ray of light in this record? And what is she also attempting to sort of shift, alter, expand, throw out from that in music? Well, first off, it's funny because she, before she released the record, she had those stopgap singles from the Austin Powers movie, Beautiful Stranger. <laughs> And that American Pie. Which were also big hits and they kept her going. But in hindsight, though, they were like kind of a little bit of the same. And I think like Madonna, she's like, let's move forward. Let's see what else we can do. So Mir was, and it's interesting because I was thinking about like kind of putting him in time. And so I guess how they got connected was her manager, Guy O'Siri, said, hey, like he was potentially wanting to sign him. And Madonna was like, no, 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 I want to work with him. This is great. And he had a kind of that French funk 70s R&B. which of course was so huge at that point with Air and Daft Punk. So there was that strain where dance music was kind of going to. It's very squelchy. Mm. It has that warmth of like the 70s. But when you were thinking about funk, there's a little bit of a harder edge. And so he also, like Orbit, makes really interesting sounds and really interesting rhythms and beats. And so I think that made them also really, really good working partners because that was really where Madonna's head was at. She was like, how can I marry this introspective songwriting with really interesting interesting forward-looking music. The fact that this came out in 2000, I think around that time, pop music, you know, first half of the 2000s especially, just sounded so great. It was so exciting with Timbaland and the Neptunes and stuff like that. So it really fit in and foreshadowed where pop music was going. Interesting. And I also think it once again speaks to Madonna's very bold penchant for chucking out ideas yeah. that worked really well and being like, I'm moving on to something else. I mean, it's so tempting, I would imagine, to have had this reinvigorating success and be like, let's do this again. Like, why wouldn't we try this exact same formula again? And what's so great about music, another record which I hold in very high esteem, is that it definitely feels of a piece. Like, I do think of them as twins in a certain sense. Me like, too. it's still dealing in that electronica paired with warmer live instrumentation. I think this one is a Attempting to frame its sonic universe as almost like a fusion of not 
country because it's like nothing explicitly country happens on this record, but she's dressing like a cowboy. I mean, I guess American West fused with electronica from Europe idea that's going on, at least in terms of how she's trying to present this entire thing. I think the thesis is that this record is ready to have fun and be frivolous in a way that Ray of Light wasn't. The first lyric of the title track, which is her last number one single in the United States, the song Music, is, hey, Mr. DJ, put a record on. I want to dance with my baby. And I feel like that's a really instructive moment for understanding this record. Hey, Mr. DJ, put a record on. I wanna dance with my baby. Music, the song, is such a fucking blast because it's like literally nonsense. I mean, everything she's talking about is like silly and fun in a way that like nothing on Ray of Light really was. And a real straightforward return to the dance floor, almost more so than anything on Ray of Light was too. a nod to her roots and where she started. When you think about the bourgeoisie and the rebel, you know, which is like, are you describing New York in the early 80s? Oh my God. Is that what it is? I tweeted this the other day. I was like, what is music makes the bourgeoisie <laughs> and the rebel? What does it mean? What does it mean? I think that's like the universal dance floor, that it's like it's open to everybody. You know, even if you're the most punk person or, you know, you're the richest person, it's room for everybody. I like that she was using those two opposites for that. Yeah. You know, she's used binaries and dichotomies before, but I think that is very telling with this. Right. And she also is kind of building on a theme that's going to start to permeate a lot of her music, especially on Confessions and Moving Forward, which is like this ticking clock idea, like that yeah. she just has to keep repelling herself moving forward. She says in the song, don't think of yesterday and I don't look at the clock. I like to boogie woogie, yeah. she says. There's a really interesting insight into the way her psyche works and the way that her career is turned in the sense of that kind of like nonstop forward motion, that like fixation on what's ahead of her that I think is one of the driving forces of this song and of her career, obviously. And I love some of the like nonsensical lyrics. Like there's a great moment on the second song, Impressive Instant, where she goes, I like to singy, singy, singy <laughs> on the birds, <laughs> on the wingy, wingy. <laughs> yep. I like to sing it, sing it, sing it Like a bird on the wingy, wingy, wingy There's a sense that she's really having fun on these records in a way that perhaps she hadn't in quite a bit of time, I think. And it's so interesting because, you know, we talked about on Ray of Light how she was really using her voice and she was singing and showing people coming off of Vita, I can sing. Here, she's like, let's distort my voice. Let's yes. kind of like play with it and let's go in the exact opposite direction and use it as another instrument. That really struck me re-listening to this record. First off, how effective it was. This is what you remember from the songs, you know? You think of the weird swerving and things around. It also kind of represents your own life kind of evolving and distorting. And so it's so smart. It's so Madonna, but it's so savvy. You brought up Daft Punk earlier, which I think is a really important touchstone for this record and for Mirwa. The song Nobody's Perfect is her essentially like singing through this distorted, yes. weird vocoder that like almost is the pinnacle kind of sad robot song because it's actually really touching because the whole song is about how she's imperfect and how she's strived to be perfect and how she's realized that she can't be 
and like all of these things, which is like such an actual point of vulnerability for someone like Madonna to admit, like someone that really likes to just be like, actually, I'm everything. I can do anything and I'm everything all the time and whatever, but is really an inventive and fun use of that technique, that sad robot, like the heart beating in the center of machinery. like proto Kesha almost in some ways when I was listening to it earlier, like throwing her voice in as an instrument, but also like presenting vulnerability in a new way. And she does it again on the song Paradise Not For Me, which is a fucking trippy ass, weird, like sludgy, dripping electronica dirge where she again sings through this massive vocoder. But I think the other thing is that this also features some of her most like naked, open, simple vocal performances ever. Like the song I Deserve It, I find to be one of her most touching and simply affecting songs and vocal performances ever. I try to do what's best. I know that I deserve it. Yeah. Oh my God. I have no regrets. There's nothing to forget. All the pain was worth it. Not running from the past. I tried to do what's best. Know that I deserve it. That's basically someone speaking this out loud to say, no, wait a second, you know, maybe my path has gone astray, but wait a second, I deserve better, I deserve this. And mm. like, even saying that out loud, because for so many people, that's so difficult to just say, because they take so much shit from people and in relationships, they make excuses. And it's like, when you come to the realization that say, wait a second, I deserve it, I deserve better. And when you can actually reach that point, that's incredible. And there's a lot of those moments on that record where she's just casually dropping off these lines and you hear them, you're like, wow, there's so many layers to it. I agree. I love what you're saying about that too, because that returning to the idea of like, how does Madonna get vulnerable? There's a sense in like, she doesn't have to have an answer for everything that I think runs through both of these records. And she's kind of just like, I'm worth it, period, without necessarily having to like prove myself. Because there is this feeling in a lot of Madonna's early work of constant proving, constant showing, proving people wrong. You mentioned earlier, like her being upset about critics saying XYZ about her voice. And I think that that's something that drove a lot of her career, which Absolutely. is like, people say I'm this and I'm going to show you that I'm not. And I'm going to show you I can do what everybody's saying I can't do. And I'm going to sing in Evita and I'm going to make a credible form of pop music that like critics love. But I do love the way that the vocals mirror on I Deserve It exactly what you're saying about sort of the lyrical revelation of the song, which is that it's one of the only songs where like her voice sounds so simple and she's just singing in a really calm, quiet, soothing <laughs> manner. I just feel like I've experienced so few times listening to 
most of her like most well-known music. I think the two crown jewels of this record are back-to-back in the back half, which are Don't Tell Me and What It Feels Like for a Girl, two of my all-time favorite Madonna records. We should land for one second on Don't Tell Me. Really the true manifestation of the country electronica (laughs) fusion. Yes. One of her best hooks of all time, I think. And the kind of like skittering start-stop production, you brought up Timberland yeah. earlier. I almost feel like this is her and Mirwa's answer to the kind of skittering start-stop music of Timberland and Aaliyah, of Missy, of Dark Child and Brandy, of Shakespeare and Destiny's Child. This is like her Madonna's take on that kind of arrhythmic R&B music that was happening at that moment. And what's so funny is that this is the song that was co-written by Joe Henry, who is related to her, but he is known as basically a straightforward, but very smart singer-songwriter. So it's fascinating that like, that's what it came out of. And I believe that he actually did a version of the song, modified version, before he gave it to Madonna. Tell me love isn't true. It's just something we But it's so interesting that that's what it came out with. I love how the song builds, too. Like, you mentioned this kind of stuttering stop. The dynamics of the song are so rich, too. And, you know, you don't Mm. always necessarily get that in Madonna songs. Like, sometimes you do, you know, if she's really going for it. But there really is something about this that, like, musically, it just really builds to a wonderful, urgent, sad, melancholy denouement. Well, there's something sad about her going, please don't tell me to stop. I almost think about that in a career sense. People called her grandma at, like, eight age 32 or whatever. You know what I mean? And I think there's always been this pressure on her from the outside. Like, bitch, are you done? You know what I mean? Like, get off stage. Like, baby, you're done. Like, your era is over. And this idea of like, I won't stop. Please don't tell me to stop. I don't look at the clock. I don't, you know, like there's these themes that she returns to a lot, which are these kind of defiant fuck yous to that notion of her. But this one comes across as more plaintive and desperate and vulnerable in a way. Please don't tell me to stop. I know she's talking about it in the sense of a love song, but there's something you could thread that to her general attitude towards her career at this point to sort of be like, don't tell me to stop. Like, I still have more to do and more to say here. It's brilliant. And I have to quote the great Tom Bryan who reviewed this a couple of years ago and said, don't tell me is pretty, but it's also strange and itchy and ungainly. It sounds like sentient droid alien life forms intercepting earthling radio waves and then attempting to write their own Cheryl Crow song. Oh, I like that. That's good. (laughs) The track delights in its own artificiality. I love that. Yeah. And then I also thought we should just put a pin in what it feels like for a girl, which I think is like one of the most earnest and lovely Madonna songs ever of course, getting into some of her tried and true themes of women being underrepresented or misunderstood, but also I think features some of her best lyrics like hands that rest on jutting hips repenting, a evocative lyric that draws in some of her past themes of religious and Catholic guilt.
Well, and that's funny, that's the line too that I really gravitated toward. And I think that's because it's so vivid because we can all think of the pop stars at that time. And that when you think of like being kind of sassy, but yet it's also talking about, you're not supposed to show hurt. You're not supposed right. to need to hold in your emotions. The line, when you're trying hard to be your best, could you be a little less? Oh, oh my God. That's like every single woman who's saying, can you be a little bit less of yourself? Can you be a little less extra? Stop being who you are. You know, and it's interesting that she uses the word what it feels like for a girl, because obviously she's in her 40s at this point, yes. but she's mentioning girls. So it's like, is she thinking back to when she started off? Is she basically saying, do we always feel like a girl? Like there's a lot of interesting kind of density to the song, I think. Absolutely. It actually, again, threads back to another great Madonna song, which is Human Nature. Like, oops, I didn't know we couldn't talk about sex. Must have been crazy. Yeah. There's always these themes that she returns to all the time of like, what are women allowed to say and express in our society. And as she matures, like, what are women of a certain age? You know, I love that you're talking about, like, her being a 40-year-old woman and talking through a child consciousness. Like, she's traversing a lot of these different gray areas between women past, present, ages, different eras of her own career, and, like, what the thesis of her own career has been, which is being a woman that is unbound by many of the sort of traditional forms that women are supposed to take in popular culture. So, obviously, music is a Another unexpected, huge late period success for Madonna that I would say builds off of the reinvention that happened with Ray of Light. It spins off what is her last number one single in the US, the title track music. She has another top 10 hit with Don't Tell Me, which reaches number four. And as we enter the 2000s, she launches her first official world tour since 1994, the iconic Drowned World Tour, which I thought that I would share briefly. I have deep sadness about because my parents went to it without me when I was 13. <gasps> they went and saw the Drowned World Tour without me, which is like so sad. One of her most iconic tours where she like comes out in the kilt and she's like doing the whole Seattle grunge look. Did they even ask if you wanted to go or they no, just buy No, they didn't get it. I think at the time I was like probably just obsessed with like Britney and Christina and like all of that stuff. And I don't think they knew that they should have brought me there. But that's like a cultural event. Like they certainly brought me to a fuckload of like Rolling Stones and U2 shows. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forgive them for that. So before we dive into what comes next, which depending on what you think about erotica constitutes her most serious commercial road bump in her career thus far. Before we get to American life, though, I just want to touch down on the idea of like the uncharted waters that Madonna is in at this age being where she is in her career. She is now in her early to mid 40s and she's had yet another semi-imperial phase of her career and probably the most unexpected and surprising one yet. Is there anybody or anything she can look to? I guess maybe share having the fluke hit of believe aside. Is there anybody that's been here before? I mean, I don't think so. And five years later, after Ray of Light, pop music has gotten younger still. It's Beyonce, because Beyonce is what, like 23 at this point? Mm -hmm. In 2003, she is like the new queen. Obviously, the teen pop stars are still popular. She's sort of like, I hate to use the word like elder states person, but that's what she was. Yeah. She really was. Totally. I think somehow her most obvious counterpart by this point is Janet, who is continuing yeah. to have success, even though Janet is 10 years younger than Madonna, it should be noted, and is doing something 
opposite from Madonna in this phase of her career, which is returning to a youthful aesthetic. Like All For You was definitely a recalibration back towards like frivolity and lightheartedness and fun after like the Velvet Rope. So she's kind of on an opposite tact from Madonna where like, yes, music represented like a little bit of a spin back to dance music for Madonna, but it still was dealing with a lot of like headier, weightier themes about getting older and about looking back and sort of pensiveness and self-interrogation. So even someone like Janet, who is another star from the 80s who has survived into this era, is doing so by being much more conversational, I think, with the sort of teen pop that's going on at that moment than Madonna is in Music and Ray of Light. I think Janet it is probably the best parallel. And it is funny that she's a decade younger because she had been in the public eye for about as long as Madonna, but she just started so much younger. So she enters 2003 and she's going to release her next studio album, American Life. And I get the sense, and tell me what you think about this, that she feels that this ponderous era of her career is working for her. And so she's almost like taking that to its logical endpoint here by conceiving of a concept album about post 9-11 America, which like makes concepts on Ray of Light and music feel fluffy. (laughs) Does that seem like potentially right? That seems right. And I think she wasn't alone in that. I think a lot of pop musicians, you know, or just musicians in general, were trying to figure out what is exactly our role here after this like very weird time with like the Iraq war too. Like the early 2000s were a very strange, fraught time. I think you had people who went very frivolous because you wanted to be escapist. And then you did have people who were like, I want to engage with this. And you're right, Madonna absolutely went with that direction. Right. It's like the Dua Lipa album versus Lemonade or something (laughs) like that. Exactly. That's a really good parallel. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's telling here with this being one of Madonna's like real first stumbles is it happened in the 80s during her peak era, but it's definitely one of the only times in recent run of Madonna albums that we've been talking about to this point where she goes back into the studio with the same producer from the last record. So that's a really interesting moment of change in the formula of her as we were sort of getting at earlier in the conversation, being willing to chuck out what had been working on the last record and go in a completely other direction. So I feel like that's another important ground layer here is that she goes back to Mirwa again to kind of essentially like drill down on the sound that they were making for music. They did. And it's so funny because Madonna was also inspired by, and like I found this quote from her, she was talking about she was inspired by Massive Attack and Lemon Jelly. And acoustic and electronic music. And it's like, but you already did that on the last two records. Right. I feel like that might be a hint as to maybe why this record didn't work so much. Because it's like, Madonna, you already did that. And like, why are you repeating yourself? Even inadvertently, even though you don't like doing that and you're working with the same people again, something about it just didn't work this time. It's puzzling to me that she's working to everything that works so well on music with same collaborators just didn't work here. I don't know if it's the lyrical approach. It could be the time was so weird. Well... Let's figure it out. So we talked about it sort of being a concept political album. If you had to describe what the thesis or themes and sounds of this record are, how would you describe what she's doing here exactly? And like how it's building on what she was doing in the last couple of records and perhaps also like maybe doing it less well? Question mark? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This one is definitely weirder than music. The songs are very cohesive and fit together, but they sound very disjointed. Like I think of like Die Another Day, which was a lot of angles, I guess. 
So as we were talking mm-hmm. earlier, the music was kind of soft and maybe welcoming. This one feels kind of harsh and it's a little bit more, not aggressive exactly, but it's more urgent and in your face. It's a harsh sounding record to me too. I think angular is an accurate description. It's very discordant sounding and using electronic music to create a sort of like almost confusing sonic landscape that sort of stutters and music did that, but this does it in a way that feels abrasive. And I think the idea behind that is to respond to the chaotic world that she's attempting to make this concept record about. But I think what's so intriguing about American life and perhaps one of the reasons I find it like really remote and like difficult to sort of relate to is you have the lead single, right? Which goes down in history as a big Madonna flop. It's called American Life. Mm -hmm. And it's the song that's really like explicitly trying to like tie her bio to the idea of like a failed American dream, right? Like, so she's trying to like posit herself as someone who really benefited from the American dream. She like talks about, I lived the American dream, right? is sort of saying like, I'm really disillusioned with it now. And it's like, capitalism is whack and America is like a colonialist nightmare and whatever. And then features the most embarrassing 45 (laughs) seconds of her career, which is the rap. I feel like we have to denote the rap. Literally one of the cringiest moments in pop history, I would say almost without question. I know she's trying to be ironic on that rap, Annie, but it's just like, it's not landing. It really isn't working. She just comes across like a fucking crazy person on that. Yeah, I can't disagree with that, honestly. I I just, I can't, like, you know, that's one of those cases where you're like, did you have anyone telling you maybe that's not a good idea? Do you have anyone, like, edit or listen to you? No. I know. And it's also, like, the birth of this grating persona that I think has, like, borne out in her later years where, like, some of the things that worked for her in her earlier career, like, her combativeness and her willingness to have no shame and try weird shit kind of, like, starts to turn on her weirdly. Like, her instincts feel off. I guess that's really an important thing that I want to lay out there is that Madonna's entire career, as we mentioned, turned on her risk-taking, but her risk-taking grounded in the most uncanny ability to, like, know what needed to come next, right? Like she always knew like what the next move was. And for the most part, she stuck that landing for most of her career. And this is a moment where the calibration just feels really strange. The fact that she didn't understand that she, this like privileged 45-year-old white mother, shouldn't be rapping about drinking soy lattes and all of her nannies and shit like that, and that that wouldn't sound weird, was like a blinking red light. Something in the machinery was malfunctioning in terms of her ability to like know what was going on. But what I was going to say about that was, so you have that track, you have the second single, Hollywood, which I think is better and also is the grounds for the iconic VMAs performance where she kisses Britney and Christina yeah. on stage. Everybody comes to Hollywood. So 
So that song, I guess, like has its own life and goes down history. Another song that's sort of like the American dream is false. And I think also her approach to these lofty topics, this is another issue, is clunky. When she was doing self-interrogative music on music and Ray of Light, she was really able to dig into that in nuanced ways. Like we talked about like her beautiful songwriting on what it feels like for a girl, for instance, or on Nothing Really Matters, right? Like she had hit this almost poetic stance with her songwriting in these last couple of records. Here, a lot of these metaphors, they have the stink of like rich white lady like realizes things are fucked up in the world, right? Like it has that vibe going on Mm -hmm. to it. And that is like not an appealing vibe. (laughs) Like that is not a good vibe. So, right, so you have Hollywood, the second song. You have I'm So Stupid, which I wrote down, is this her freshman in college album and I just took a philosophy class? There's like this, oh my God, I just woke up and I realized the world is bullshit. You know what I mean? Like I'm out of my bubble now and like now I realize the world is bullshit. But once you get beyond those three songs, I think this record is less a statement on American culture and more the story of a disillusioned pop star experiencing a midlife crisis is like how I ultimately see this record more than like a statement on American politics. And I think that's a good assessment. It's funny because you you talk about intention and she was always very intentional about where she was going. I feel like that she maybe was not going for that. And because she missed the mark of making this grand universal political statement, it ended up being this statement on midlife crisis for a pop star. Because you're right. Uh, You know, it's funny because, you know, the last two records were so personal Mm -hmm. and it really hit and connected. When she's trying to be universal here or representative or be ironic, it just doesn't work. But when she is peeling off that facade a little bit, letting people behind it, it is a little bit better. And I think that's very right. That's maybe why this record is so frustrating. Is it because- Yes. She has this intention of doing one thing and it doesn't succeed and she still pushes even that direction's not working. But yet it's like, look, there's a whole other thread. Lean into that instead. And it's almost like she willfully doesn't. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a really good assessment. And I think there's always a struggle when a pop star makes a record that's like, it's hard being me. That's a really hard (laughs) album for a pop star to make. Some people have done it well. Like I think, for instance, like Billie Eilish did it really effectively on her last album. There are ways to make like, the struggle of a pop star somehow still feel not remote and sort of like cringy. But this record is the opposite of that to me. Like I listen to a lot of these songs and I'm like, I don't want to hear you whine. I can't process that. Like it just doesn't come off well and you come off as abrasive in a way that unfortunately presages some of the ways that she continues to come off as abrasive in this last sort of 15 years of her career. Not that she's been whining or whatever in the last 15 years of her career, but this sort of feeling of out of touchness, this feeling that the way that she perceives herself and the way that she wants others to perceive her feels completely disjointed from reality. I think this is the first time that this kind of registers on record for her. And it felt like maybe just a misstep at the time, but now I look back on it and I think, okay, this was a sign of things to come on some level. I would agree with that. It really is foreshadowing the fact that she was human. She could mess up and she could have a misstep. And I think what's frustrating too is like you look at something like Mother and Father, which you read the lyrics and it's like she's telling a story about herself. She's telling 
Ellen story mm-hmm. about losing her mom. And it's an honest song. You know, not every lyric is perfect. It's a little, I mean, my father had to go to work. I used to think he was a jerk. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Classic that's not, Madonna clunker. <laughs> exactly. Not the greatest lyric, but like the sentiments there. She's, you know, was trying. Right. But then the next line is, I didn't know his heart was broken. Not another word was spoken. Like, okay. Great line. She's kind of delving into, you know, a very notoriously fraught relationship. My father had to go to work. I used to think he was a jerk. She's trying, but it's almost like the record, as we talked about, is trying to do a couple different things. It's like, lean into that a little bit, Madonna. You were okay about doing that. It'd be very interesting to hear having this like very personal lyrics with music that's a little bit more discordant. Like there's some kind of interesting Mm -hmm. tension there. It frustrates me because I feel like this record had a lot of potential and, you know, it was just sort of dead in the water because the songs were just like, not what people wanted to hear from Madonna, like we said. It was sort of like, this is not the kind of record that you really should be making right now. Also, I think the folk Veronica vibe had worn thin at this point. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Like everything that made Ray of Light and music soar in that regard, like feels tired and wrote on this record to me. That idea had been borne out and rendered very well on so many songs up to this point that it just kind of felt like redundant getting into that again. And I think it goes back to something you were highlighting earlier in the conversation, which is just what we keep returning to here, which is like Madonna is defined by her reinventions. She's defined by moving on to the next thing. And if she's not doing that, there's a problem. And I think that that's another thing that also highlights some of the things that have gone wrong later on in her career, which is that as things started to sputter out, she she started trying to go back to things she'd done before with Hard Candy, with MDNA, with all of these records. She started to try to be like, oh, let me dig through my past and figure out what I could drum up from the past that worked. And none of the good Madonna records, none of the great Madonna records do that. All of the great Madonna records feel like revelational steps forward for her. And it's like, that's a problem. So I think... That's enough for us on American (laughs) Life. There's actually, Annie, I don't know if you know this, there's a big like Justice for American Life movement out there. It's one of these records that people think is misunderstood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me put it this way. This is no art pop. (laughs) I think it would be fair to say that having a stumble at this point in her career, even I, now finally a cognizant music consumer by the time this album came out, thought, this is it. Like, I remember during Ray of Light and Bedtime Stories and music thinking she was, like, definitely, like, older than the pop stars that I was into, but was still cool. And I remember when this came out, I remember her, like, making the Gap commercial with Missy Elliott and just being like, the vibe is weird. This is not for me. At 15, however old I was when this came out. I just felt like it was kind of over for her and a weird way, but it was not. <laughs> we can't count out Madonna. That's the one constant. You can't count her out. I'm so glad we have one last incredible Madonna album to get into. I don't know how you feel about it, but basically she got the message, I think, is the bottom line. One thing you could say about Madonna is that when she walked out of American Life, this links this record back to Erotica a little bit, which is that she ultimately is a commercial creature, right? Like we love her for like her ways that she's fused the worlds of avant-garde and mainstream pop. But I think Madonna only really works or only really wants to work as something that's really popular. Like, I think that that's something that she really strives for and feels like fundamental to the project. And I think she got the message from the commercial underperformance of this, that she needed to go back to something that was more of a crowd pleaser. And I think that it's something that's bigger. Like, she loves big, bold statements. And with the politics, didn't quite hit. But she knows the dance floor is her comfort zone. And if you want to talk about dance floor banger, she's like, how can I do this? I'm going to 
sample ABBA and it's going to be fucking amazing. Oh my God. Imagine coming up with one of the greatest singles of your career at this moment. You're 48 fucking years old. Everyone thinks you're done. And you literally toss up as your lead single one of the best singles of your career. Like, come on. if there's another moment in pop history that solidifies someone as the best at what they do as hung up does because it's like if she had hung it up at that point she still would have been the queen of pop tier one icon forever like it wouldn't have mattered but she pulled out of her ass like one of her best songs ever i mean annie this song is so fucking good it hasn't aged like when i would re-listen to this record you know you mentioned the lack of joy this is yeah. the joy. There's that joy and there's that yearning and that ecstasy. And the use of the ABBA song is so clever and so doesn't smart. feel like a crutch at all. They completely like reinvent and recontextualize that sample. And I love that it still deals with some of like the weightier themes that she's been consumed with over like the latter swing of her career. Like there's the ticking clock, right? There's the time goes by so slowly for those who wait, which is a callback to love song from Like a Prayer, the song she had with Prince. That's actually a lyric she lifts from that song. dealing with the ideas of like outrunning the passage of time, right? And also the idea that men only hold her back (laughs) from getting where she wants to go. Because the idea of the song is essentially like, the fact that I'm like obsessed with you is actually like kind of hindering me right now and I need to move the fuck on from you. There's that sense of urgency, that sense of forward motion that makes so much of the Madonna project, all of it tick, no pun intended because of the ticking clock. But I think that that's so much of the energy of what this song runs on and without losing its sense of fun and its sense of churning on an absolutely like ebullient pop hook. So what does that song tell us about what Confessions on a Dance Floor is supposed to be? I think we should also touch on who Stuart Price is because she gets the message also that she once again needs to pivot. What does she want to do with this record, do you think, overall? Like, what is the overall vision that she's putting forth here? And why is Stuart Price the person that's going to help her realize that? I mean, I think she wanted to get away from the drudgery of American life and do something fun again. And Stuart Price, I think he had a credit on American Life. I'm a Mm -hmm. big Stuart Price fan. He had this project called Zoot Woman, who, if you have not heard it, is like the best obscure dance, synth pop, funk record. They had this record called Living in a Magazine from 2001. Mm. So that was like my first kind of introduction to him. And he was so fantastic.
but he's also and I'm gonna mispronounce this, Les Rhythms Digitalis. He's basically a dance guy. He is really good at taking retro dance sounds, but then making them sound fresh for a modern generation as a producer. Mm -hmm. Right, and he's gone on to produce work by The Killers and Kylie Minogue and so many others. But prior to this, he was somewhat obscure, but he had done an amazing remix of Hollywood from American Life, which I think must have been part of the inspiration for this. People knew him, but he wasn't like, you know, the superstar producer. He was not Max Martin. Right. And she worked with him and God, they were so good together. It made so much sense because their sensibilities just meshed so well. Like kind of like the fun callbacks, but also doing stuff that's very buoyant. It was very familiar. Like you listen to these songs, you're like, oh, I know that song. But yet it's different. You haven't. It's original. And he's so good at that. And I think she was so good at that. Right. This record is unique to this point in Madonna's career because it does feel like it's it's the first time that she's actively looking backwards at some of her past musical eras. Like she is referencing early phases of her music career, but also of the time before her rise to fame. Like there's a huge Donna Summer sample on Future Lovers, which is like a really important connection for Madonna to make because I think Donna Summer is one of Madonna's most obvious predecessors in the pop landscape. There's samples from the Pet Shop Boys. There's samples from SOS Band. So she's calling back very directly to late 70s and early 80s pop, kind of like the era right before she emerged. It's almost like she's creating like a time loop from like her emergence and then back to before her emergence. Like she's almost like closing a circle or something like that by like referencing all of that particular music. But what I think is also two of the things that makes this record so successful is one, it both is able to capture the sense of fun and the sense of straightforward pop hookiness that we were missing so much on American Life, but it also retains her world-worn wisdom of this later period Madonna perspective. You still have songs like Sorry, which churn on the refrain, I've heard it all before, I've heard it all before. There's still this sense that she's someone that knows life, has lived a long time. Like she's not trying to make, again, like a Britney Spears song. This isn't her returning to the dance floor and trying to turn herself into a teen. She's still bringing some of the wisdom and perspective that she weaponized so effectively on Ray of Light and Music, but sort of just putting it into a more straightforward and easy to consume and incredibly hooky context, which is like one of the reasons I think this album is so effective. And the other is, I think it's the last Madonna album that is on the pulse of something that is about to come, which is the explosion of EDM and dance music in American culture. This predates Sexy Back, this predates Don't Stop the Music by Rihanna, and then it predates Lady Gaga, and it predates the explosion of Four on the Floor, up-tempo dance music, which was about to be the central force in American pop music, but at this time was still very much on the fringes. This was still a moment in pop where kind of hip-hop and B, Jennifer Lopez, Fergie, Gwen 
Stefani, Neptunes, all of that stuff was still the sort of center of pop music. So she was on the pulse of something that was about to happen, I think, for the last time in her career. And I think it's that kind of amalgam of things that makes this record so special. I love that observation. And I think maybe that's why that record, A, still sounds so good, because I love the whole like late 2000s EDM movement now is very charming. It feels like almost quaint. But the way Madonna did it was her own way. Like she kind of reconfigured it in her own, like how, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to predict this, I'm going to do it in a different way. Her and Kesha sounded so different. Her and Gaga and Red one, completely different. But you're right that she was like, you know, I'm going to be unabashedly on the dance floor. And one of the contrasts between her and Gaga and Kesha and all of that, these songs are very elegant. Stuart Price's productions are elegant. And they're traditional house songs in the sense that they unfurl and build over time. Like a lot of the EDM songs, like let's get to the drop in the first 20 seconds of the song or whatever. The way that a song like Get Together unfurls, which is absolutely one of my all-time favorite Madonna songs, it doesn't even really give you the gratification of the drop until about three and a half or four minutes into the song, which is like a classic way that dance music is supposed to work, which is supposed to be this slow and steady build towards release. Like that's how house music was traditionally constructed. These songs are sophisticatedly produced by Stuart Price. Like, this man has a very deep and textural idea of how the flow of a dance experience is supposed to work. And, like, I'm always very tuned into that. I've worked in clubs my entire life. And I was fun going back to this in the context of the EDM songs because it's like, these songs are patient and they unfurl themselves to you and they build towards climax in a way that's incredibly gratifying. And that's such a reflection of Madonna's smart way of looking at music, too. She's going to have these songs with these amazing hooks and these amazing grooves. But she's like, I'm not going to dumb this down for you. I'm going to make these songs. And Stuart Price never does it. Yes. He's going to take amazing songs and make them even better, even more sophisticated. And also, I think another reason why he and Madonna work so well together is that they had that brain meld and just made magic. Yes. These songs, despite feeling so pop oriented, like never feel stupid. And we have to mention that there's only one canonical way to listen to this record, which is as the continuously mixed DJ mix. That was so brilliant. It is so gratifying to listen to these songs in that format. Like, you can listen to this album where they are, like, rendered as individual songs, but you should only listen to Confessions on a Dance Floor as the continuous mix. If you can find it, I highly recommend listening to it that way. It works as, like, an entire DJ set. Like, what a great idea. That also speaks to the cohesion of the sound, and that's also what I love about this record. It's all kind of of a piece. It doesn't feel sort of angular. It's its own universe, and I I love Mm -hmm. saying that about records, but that's another reason why it's just so good. It almost feels like the end of something. And I do feel like it was the end of something for better or worse. And weirdly, I feel like she has a sense of that somehow here because never again has she sounded like she was able to balance the worlds of her artistic integrity and her desire to be popular. This was the last time that she was able to effectively do that for me. I'm not saying it hasn't happened on individual songs on these subsequent records, but from Hard Candy through the next three records, I guess Madam 
Max's own thing because I definitely think she swung for something with integrity of that one. It just doesn't work for me that well. But at least with Hard Candy, MDNA, and most of Rebel Heart, I feel like Madonna's singular musical perspective and artistic integrity has been subsumed by her desire to find a hit. And I think this was the last time that she was able to balance that elegantly. But in terms of this being the end of something as a story, there's a lot of fascinating callbacks to her earlier music in a way that like she's very resistant to in a lot of the rest of her career. Like she's notorious, for instance, right, for like going on tour and giving you like almost none of the hits. Mm -hmm. Like if she's going on a tour, she's performing the entire new album and she'll throw you like three bones, right? Like on the Madame X tour, that album couldn't have been worse received. She performed <laughs> every song from Madame X and like three other songs and like made it work to her immense credit. Exactly. So she's not someone that really likes to look back. She says all the time, I don't think of yesterday and I don't look at the clock. You know, she's literally like said this a million times in her music, but there's this lyric on how high where she says, I spent my whole life wanting to be talked about. I do anything to see my name in light. Nobody's perfect a reference to the American Life song, I Guess I Deserve It, a reference to the music song. mentioned earlier the reference to Like a Prayer's love song, Unhung Up. That's something that returns over and over again because this record is supposed to be somewhat of an homage to her early days in her pre-fame life in dance clubs in New York. So this is an interesting moment where she does allow herself to be nostalgic in a way that I think we've, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this episode, is something that she tends to shy away from, generally speaking. I just thought that was an interesting thing. Does she have a sense that she needs to capstone her career with this album somehow? And I love that because I found this really great quote from her that I'm going to read to you. I think she told us the billboard. Is that Forbidden Love? And of course, which is there's another Forbidden Love. Right. On Bedtime Stories. And she said, I did all that on purpose. I mean, if I'm going to plagiarize somebody, it might as well be me, right? I feel like <laughs> I've earned the right to rip myself off, you know? And But she said she used it. She was using it to kind of draw people in. And she says, it's like, now that I have your attention, I have a few things to tell you. I love that. She knows that she can wield nostalgia and it'll draw people in who will be like, oh, it's the Madonna I know. But she's like, this is me now. Like, I think that's such a sign of her savviness. That is one of the things that I think you're right in terms of like something that's kind of come to an end. This was very savvy and very herself and very smart. And a lot of her work after this just feels like it's it's not savvy. It's reaching and it's deliberate in a way that like we talked about her judgment center is a little bit askew, a little bit off kilter. Craven, it feels craven. I think the referencing of past eras actually adds emotional weight to this record because it allows you to be like, oh my God, like what this woman has done in her career, like what she has to draw on here is so immense and so powerful. One of my favorite times she does that is on the song Jump, which is one of the greatest songs on this record, actually not produced by Stuart Price, produced by Bloodshy and Avant of Toxic and Blackout fame. Many people might know them. And she says, we learned the lesson from the start. My sisters and me, the only thing you can depend on is your family, which is a really interesting lyric for Madonna, who's used her biography with her family to great effect throughout most of her discography. Mm -hmm.
but also a callback to the Like a Prayer song, Keep It Together, which is like a Sly in the Family Stone nodding, family affair nodding, funk meets New Jack swing track that has really powerful placement at the end of Truth or Dare as like the last song in the Blonde Ambition tour. And it's like used as the finale in the movie. It's just one of my favorite moments because I think that she's wielding nostalgia for these old songs and for old guises and for her story and how much her story and her success and her trials and tribulations and everything about her has meant to everyone that's listening to this music and everybody that consumes pop music. Like, I love that she's capitulating to us enough to give us that. Like, it feels cathartic on this record. Like, I'm glad that that exists. I'm glad for a person that really never looked back, right, through this time and who really really kept things moving forward to great effect and created so much incredible work on this planet to give back to pop music and to give back to pop culture that she was able to give us in the context of a very innovative, forward-looking album, the ability to celebrate her, I guess, in a weird way. Yeah. And I think that that's what this album does so well. Without feeling like she's just remaking something she did in the past, she also allows us to celebrate what she's done to this point through this music. And I think that's one of the reasons why I found it to be one of her most powerful records. And the last Madonna album that I can truly claim for myself is this album. I'm so impressed that she was able to do this at this phase of her career. And that run from the self-titled album through this album is perhaps the greatest in pop history. I mean, absolutely. And there's a certain amount of also confidence when you're able to take stock of what you've done and look back and say, you know what? I'm going to let myself be proud of this. Yes. Because she's so busy moving forward, need to try new things, try new things. It takes a lot to be able to stop and say, well, wait a second. Yes, I keep doing this, but I want to celebrate where I came from and realize, you know what? I did some fucking amazing things and here's why. And I'm going to honor that. It makes sense that she's in her mid forties doing this because she's able to look back and say, you know what? Now I've lived a lot of life. I don't care if people think that I'm being arrogant. I don't care if people think I'm being X or Y, you know, fuck it. I don't care. I don't care what people think about me anymore. I'm going to do this. And I feel like there's something to be said about that too. I completely agree with you. And I'm actually like moved sitting here just having gone through this whole journey with her because she means so much to me as a pop listener, fan, consumer, as a queer person. It's almost hard for me to put into words the power of her work. She has created culture. She's created so much of things that we take for granted. And so many of the things that I love about consuming culture are things that she put into form for the first time. And the fact that she's given us so much to talk about, like the fact that you and I are sitting here, what, 40 <laughs> years from her debut album at this yeah. point? And like, there's still so much to dig into. And yes. I could have done this series entirely from scratch again and probably talked about all different things. She's put so much thought into all of this and she was so bold and innovative and fascinating and incredible to watch and just an incredible entertainer and an incredible songwriter. And I think that's the thing that we started the series on and that's the thing I want to come back to here which is like all of the provocations and the innovation 
Dickens and the visuals and all of the amazing things that we remember her for would have meant nothing and been nothing if the fact wasn't that this music was all fucking good. Exactly. The music made it worth it. And anybody that wants to say that that's secondary or that she was any sort of cipher in that realm, this woman cycled through how many different collaborators through all of these records? 10, 12? She's the only constant here. The only constant here through all of this incredible hit music, whether you're talking about Hung Up, Vogue, Everybody, whatever you're talking about, like the constant here is her. Like she knew how to make incredible, memorable pop music. And that was the backbone of this whole project. None of the rest of it would have meant shit. She could have been as provocative or tantalizing or entertaining as she has been in all of the ways that she has been. But if the songs weren't there, none of this would have worked. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm most moved by is like the amount of incredible songs that this woman has left behind. It's Americana. It's like apple pie. You think about holiday, yes. literally holiday is like apple pie to me. It's more than a song. It's more than a hit from Madonna. Like that song is like a piece of American history and culture. I mean, I remember being a kid and hearing Material Girl and Borderline. Those are some of like my first musical memories because there was just something like immediately comforting about yeah. them. There was something immediately familiar. And it was just like, I don't even know how to put it into words almost. Right. She did, you know, from the get-go, obviously she had her sonic touchstones and you can kind of, you know, draw lines from X, Y, and Z, but there was always just something so special when it was her doing this and her at the center of this and her charisma and her smarts and her songwriting and her defiance. She always knew I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to have my pop music on my terms. And that made it, she owned it. And it's so funny because everyone can come of age at different Madonna eras and they're just as valid. You know, you can look back at Madonna and you have a different take on it. And she really is endlessly fascinating. But you're right. It comes back to the songs. There are so many musicians. You're like, I want to study them because they're very interesting. And it's like the music is almost secondary. And with her, I mean, the visuals and the documentaries and the cultural and the political, Mm. she's just like the whole package. She was like the original 360 degree pop star that just had everything. She's an inspiration and like no amount of later period antics can take away from the fact that like, you know, I'd say she is top 10 most significant cultural figures of the modern era. No question about it. Forget the fucking pop pantheon. We don't need to do a pop pantheon (laughs) ranking on Madonna. Madonna is the pop pantheon. There is nothing. That's done. Like, we don't even have to have that discussion. So much of what we think of today and so much of what we take for granted for today, like, there's very few people that have come along and had that level of impact. And it's inspiring. She inspires. And it's so set in stone that she can act like a fucking idiot all day on TikTok for the last five years. And there's nothing she could do to fuck any of this up for me ever, no matter what she does, no matter what crazy shit she's doing on there all day. Go off, queen. Do what you're doing. (laughs) You just kind of shake your head and be like, oh, that's just Madonna being Madonna. All right, let's go put on confessions on the dance floor again. (laughs) I would love it if she did come up with a worthwhile record again. It would make me so happy. I want to ask you like what Madonna's legacy in pop music is, but I almost feel like that's a rote question. Like, I think it kind of goes without saying. It's like, she is the blueprint for every single pop star that has come after her. Is that pretty much accurate, would you say? 
I think that is. And I think it's almost easy to take her for granted because Mm -hmm. she did do it first. I mean, where do you even begin in terms of what she did first? Like everything. Exactly. (laughs) And so it's almost hard to tick off, you know, a bullet point list of things. But she did it first. Pop music would not be where it is today without her. Let's put it that way. Yes. Here is my last question for you, Annie, before we wrap up this epic marathon on Madonna. What is an underrated Madonna song from this era that we talked about, from one of these records? Ray of Light, Music, American Life, Confessions, something we haven't talked about yet that we could send this episode and this Madonna series out on. Gone. Okay. That's perfect. Because when I re-listened to that record and it came to Gone and I'm like, God, I'd forgotten about that song. Mm -hmm. What an incredible song. And it's the last song on the record. It's very sparse. Like it just kind of hits you. I love it too because it encapsulates everything we've been talking about, which is like she's saying, turn to stone, lose my faith. I'll be gone before that happens. Like there's nothing that can break her. You know, that's such a theme in her career and it's been borne out in everything that she's ever done. Like she won't stop until she has decided (laughs) it's time for her to stop. And that is a theme that's run through a lot of her work, the defiance, refusing to disappear, refusing to be erased. I think that sums her up so beautifully. So what a perfect song for us to go out on. Yay! Annie Zaleski, thank you so, so much for being on the show again. This has been so delightful and I love talking about this era of Madonna and this has been so rejuvenating, honestly. For me too, and I'm glad we got to celebrate it together. Absolutely, thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon Madonna, a certified, undeniable tier one icon, the tier one icon of all tier one icons. The judgment is rendered, although who am I to pass judgment? I think I she judges me. Madonna, please, I bow at thy feet. Thank you so much to the incredible Annie Zaleski for being an incredible guest on this episode. Thank you, of course, again to Edward Russell and to Jason King for being our past guest on the last two episodes and making this series so dynamic and fascinating. I learned so much from all of you. I loved talking to you all. Thank you for educating me and thank you for educating all of us. Thank you, of course, to the fantastic Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show possible every single week. Thank you to PJ Vernetti for helping edit this episode. Please follow Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me at DJLOUIEXIV on both Instagram and Twitter. Rate, review, subscribe. Give us your reviews. We're going to pick our faves and send you guys a niche legend dad hat if you write our favorite review of the month. Join our Patreon Pop Pantheon all access by going to patreon.com slash pop pantheon or clicking the link in the show notes of this episode for bonus content and so much more. Buy our merch at poppantheonpod.com and until we meet again, you all have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.